I did plan this series thinking about what would be a good sermon uh, for Christmas Eve, right? That's today. And as we're thinking about Jesus today, this story, the Jesus encountering Lazarus, and, and of course all the things surrounding that, centers on two of the most important human traits, love and faith. And we're going to see these things as they come to the forefront of this story. Jesus' love and our faith. These are the pillars of this story. As we think about the study of, of Lazarus of Bethany. We'll begin in John 11, 1 through 6, which was read just a minute ago. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, and uh, the village... Uh, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And we note this right away, right? That he whom you love is ill. One of the things that is going to be prominently on display in this text, in the story, is Jesus' love for this family in particular, more broadly applied to everybody, but he, he does seem to have a special connection with this family. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, that the uh, Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. We see this again, this love of Jesus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, we note two things. One, his love for Lazarus. But then the second, why wait two extra days? Okay, I've heard that Lazarus is ill. You know, let's just hang out here a couple more days. We're just going to hang out. Not going to go, and, and of course we know... If you've read the story before, we know there's a purpose to this. This is the first indication that something is unusual is about to go on. Something unusual is happening in this story. Jesus hears. He loves the family. He's my friend. I love these people. He's ill. Let's just hang out. Right? We're just going to hang out for a couple more days. And of course, I want you to note, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. He's saying this. And the people around him are probably thinking, oh, great, I'm glad the illness is not that bad. Of course, we know that Jesus is thinking about this in a different way. Verse 7, after he said to the disciples, after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? One of the things Jesus does, and, and it, makes, it doesn't make sense until way later for the disciples, of course. Okay, we're going to die if you go here, Jesus. His first response is, at least I think in the moment, a little bit nonsensical. Are there not 12 hours in a day? What does that have to do with anything, Jesus? If we go there, we're going to die. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbled because the light is not in him. And of course, we, I think in hindsight, and of course the disciples, I think in the broader context of the Gospels, we've seen already a lot of discussion about light, especially in John's Gospel, this discussion about light. We looked at it last week with Jesus healing the blind man. And the point that we made, of course, as we, as we keep making over and over, the stories of Jesus, why we're looking at these stories, one of the reasons is how people respond. How people respond to what Jesus has to say. How people act when Jesus does and says these unusual things. And of course it's centered on this idea of light. Because he sees the light of this world. Of course, who is that? That's Jesus. While he's on earth, of course, Jesus would not let any threats prevent him from doing what needed to be done. In this case, going to Bethany. Going to see Lazarus. 
I know that this is risky, and, and of course he knows it's not, because he knows all things. But to the disciples, it's risky. We're not going to let that stop. It's daylight now. They're 12 hours in a day. I'm still around. We need to do this. And of course, repeating the same idea, right? That many people refuse to see that light. We keep reading in verse 11. After these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Again, we see the confusion. This illness does not lead to death. Oh, that's nice. He's fallen asleep. I go to wake him. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad Lazarus isn't dead. Of course, Jesus is going to say it plainly. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that he, I was not there so that you may believe. Here's our second note. Okay, first, he delays two days. Why does he do that? Second note that something unusual is going on. I am glad for your sake, that I was not there. I'm glad in some ways, and really you put it together, this is all, uh, the only thing you can mean, I'm glad that he died. I waited two days to make sure that that happened. Because if I was there, if Jesus had been there, the implication is what? He wouldn't have died, because Jesus would have healed him. That's why he delayed two days. I'm glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. Of course, Thomas is very fatal right here, fatalist. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, we see there's a gathering here. This is another part of the story that's important. People are coming to gather. Another reason why it's important that he's delayed two days, we'll see as we go. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, and, and I really wish, this is another great example, I wish we had audio, right? How is she saying this? Is it accusatory? Is it mournful? God, if you'd only been here, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would still be alive. Versus, Lord, if you'd been here, he'd still be alive. Why did you wait two days? We sent for you. You could have come. I don't know which it is. It's hard to say in the text. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says this, but it seems like she doesn't quite understand as we go through the text what she's saying here. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Again, is it, is it sort of sarcastic? Yeah, I know he's going to rise on the last day. Or is it hopeful? Yes, I know he will rise on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is, of course, the hinge statement of the whole story. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This question at the heart of this story. Do you believe this? Not just at the heart of this story, but really at the heart of the gospel as a whole. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That's the question. She said to him, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She says this, but as we go through the story, I'm, I'm not sure quite, she quite understands what that means. So, summing it up here as we pause for a minute. 
First sign that something's up, Jesus delays for two days. The second, for your sake, I'm glad he died. There's something deeper going on here. And again, it's wrapped up in these two statements. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. At the heart of this encounter is the need for faith. Do you believe this? The need to see his light and believe. The choice has very real eternal stakes. This is, quite frankly, the most important question that anyone will ever ask you. Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? There is not a more important question than that in the history of mankind. It is the hinge point of your eternal destination. And so I do wonder at Martha's inflection here, right? Accusatory or mournful. She says she believes, but she doesn't quite understand. Yeah, I'm going to raise him, or he will rise again, rather. Do you believe this? Yes, he'll rise on the last day. She's not thinking about right now. She's not thinking about Jesus is going to raise him in like two hours. She's, she has some amount of faith, but she lacks understanding. We'll keep reading in verse, uh, verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And, and people are kind of milling about around the house and in the town. They're, they're more, uh, comforting the mourners, right? They've come to console. When the Jews who were in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was in Psalm, she fell at his feet. And again, we asked the question, is she accusing or is she mournful? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think at least one of them is probably accusatory. Because he delayed, and it's very explicit in the text. They send for him, he delays two days, then we'll go. Why didn't you come? Why is this happening? Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, here is the crux of the story of his humanity and compassion. And John goes out of his way, takes great care as we read this, to highlight Jesus' emotional state. We know he loves Jesus or loved Lazarus. Now the plight of the family moves him. As we read this, we must ask, who exactly is he sad for and why? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So they take him over to the tomb. Here, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, famous for it, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. They immediately assume he's weeping because Lazarus has died. When we know in the story, that can't be the case. He's already said... This illness does not lead to death. He's already said, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, that you may believe. Jesus knows what is about to take place here. His weeping is not because he's sad Lazarus is gone. He knows Lazarus is not gone. That's the whole point of the story. But some of them said, could he have not opened the eyes of the blind? He who opened the eyes of the blind men also not have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Of course, very evocative of uh, the tomb of Jesus that would eventually be his. There's stone in front of it. Who is Jesus sad for, and why? Well, he's not sad Lazarus is gone, because Lazarus is coming back. He might be sad that the family is sad. 
I think there's definitely part of that, that compassion and the empathy and the feeling for other people, that we are moved by the sadness of others. He loves this family. He sees them in grief. And I think he maybe is sad a little bit because maybe they're on the brink. Lord, if you had been here, a family on the brink, perhaps tipping towards anger, tipping towards bitterness, potentially tipping towards unbelief. But I think if I was to hazard a guess, Jesus is most sad for what he is about to do to his friend. Lazarus, who is at rest, who is whatever the eternal state in between death and judgment, whatever that is, not experiencing suffering, not experiencing pain or loss or sorrow or doubt or loneliness or insecurity. And Jesus is about to yank him back into this fallen world. Not great for Lazarus. Great for the rest of them. Great for the alleviation of suffering of Mary and Martha. Not great for Lazarus. So there's a whole flood, storm of emotions at play here. As Jesus is, I think, moved by their suffering. He's moved by their sorrow. He's sad because he loves them and they're sad. And sad because of what he's about to do to his friend Lazarus. It should be noted, of course, that death is not the greatest source of sadness to God. Or for Lazarus, we might say in this story. Paul expresses it this way in Philippians 1 verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Not a cause of sadness, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall, not, uh, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. Lazarus is in the better. Death is not the ultimate source of sadness for God. The real problem, the true source of godly grief, is spiritual death which prevents us from being with Christ after physical death. That's the greatest source of sorrow. So Jesus is moved by sorrow, both for Lazarus, his friend, for the people who are around him. But I think we can understand more accurately his sorrow by how he has orchestrated this story to a very particular conclusion. And as we read the conclusion, I hope we can see that this is building toward a particular idea. John 11, verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead four days. You sure you want to do this, Jesus? It's going to be stinky. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? And again, I wonder at Jesus' inflection here. Exasperated consoling, comforting, accusatory. Did I not tell you? I, I just told you this. Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around. Jesus doesn't need to say this out loud. Jesus has perfect communion with the Father. Jesus is perfectly in sync with him. He just, there's this direct communication between the Father and the Son. He is praying this out loud very explicitly. I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. I don't know how he's sort of, I don't know. It's probably a funny picture, really. He's sort of waddling out of the tomb because his hands and feet are bound. And he's sort of hopping out and his, feet, his face wrapped with the cloth. And Jesus said, unbind and let him go. This, this super powerful moment sort of punctuated by this comical picture. But when you put it all together in hindsight, the encounter, this encounter seems to have but one point. Orchestrated very directly by Jesus. 11.4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 11.6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. 11.15. For your sake, I'm glad he was, I was not there, so that you may believe. 11.26. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 11.42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. The whole thing was for the express specific purpose of creating faith in those present. They needed to believe. What is at the risk of happening here? As Mary and Martha both say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. Tipping on the brink of anger and bitterness and resentment. And Jesus has orchestrated this whole encounter so that they might believe. So that their faith would be renewed. So the people standing around would see and know who Jesus is. That the Father would be glorified in this moment. Because this is more broadly his purpose. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5.21, for the Father, as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so the Son gives life. John 8.50-51, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This encounter encapsulates Jesus' whole purpose and mission. I am the resurrection and the life. It is motivated, first of all, by deep, profound love for people. We see that. He's moved in his spirit a number of times through the story. He loves Lazarus. He weeps for what's happening here. It is accomplished by great power and authority. Ultimately, the power to raise someone from the dead. That's the whole point of the story. Believe in me, I'm going to raise this guy from the dead so that you might believe. It is designed to create faith and belief in him and the one who sent him. And we might say these things, not just of the encounter with Lazarus, but of the entire incarnation. Why Jesus came to be born of a virgin, to fulfill these prophecies long ago, was this, to create faith, to engender belief, both in Jesus and the one who sent him. Why? Because the stakes are so high. Who is dead? We are. Again, it's not physical death that's the problem. Lazarus, I imagine, why'd you pull me back, Jesus? Why am I here again? Death isn't the problem. Those who don't see the light, spiritual blindness, spiritual death, that's the problem. Who's dead? We are. Anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, we're dead. And how does that make Jesus feel? 
he weeps. He weeps now. He weeps today because there are people, maybe in this room, who when they die will not be with him. That is the greatest source of sorrow. And that's why he orchestrates this entire story. Because he weeps over our pain, our sorrow, and longs for us to find relief and comfort in his life and his light. But we know the light and life he offers are conditional on belief and obedience. That's the whole point of the encounter. So that you may believe and you may have life. Ultimately demonstrated in the power. We'll close with two verses here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Bringing this broader point, not just out of the story of Lazarus, but to everyone here. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, because we're dead, it's horrible, it's hopeless. Lord, if you'd been here, we would not die. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He raised us in a better way than Lazarus. Lazarus, who was raised physically, we who might be raised spiritually, eternally, ultimately to be raised again in the last day, as Mary says, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2, 8 through 13. See to it then, a so what, if you will, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Those are the stakes. Why Jesus delayed two days. Why he was glad he wasn't there. Why he asks Mary the questions he asks. Why he says the prayer out loud so that they would not be taken captive, that they would believe. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with, an uncircum with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses. The story of Lazarus. He could have just healed him as soon as he heard. We've seen that a number of times in the stories of Jesus. Jesus, the one who you love is sick. Jesus just sort of, okay, now he's not. He could have done that at 100 miles, 150 miles, 300 miles. He doesn't have to be there. He waits, he delays, he goes and sees him. He weeps for the sorrow of the family, the suffering of those around him. But ultimately, this story was to bring about belief and faith. And I ask you the same question that Jesus asked that fateful day. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? If you do, there's some things that he expects of you. To repent, to confess, to be immersed into him to be faithful and obedient. If you don't believe that, 
he's weeping right now for your lostness, for your destruction. But he wants you to be saved. 